out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, songwriter, engineer, producer. It is the one and only Bill Carey, who I spoke to very recently from Florida. I know, exciting. Uh, to find out more about life, love and uh, poetry. He's been in a lot of bands, including Crash and also Something Pretty Beautiful, The Stick Fingers and much, much more. Anyway... We'll get, you'll find out lots more in this interview. So, um, after some casual chat, as you do, we got down to that exciting subject that was the 80s, yes, and his time with something pretty beautiful when they were on Creation Records. And this is Bill's response. Bill, it's over to you. Yeah, the, the, we did two, um, well, essentially we, we recorded two EPs for Creation with something pretty beautiful. And... The first one came out, and after that, we did some touring with the House of Love. They did this tour where they did like 31 dates around Britain in 31 days. Right. Playing lots of small towns rather than just the main cities. And we were the support on that tour with them. So we, you know, we basically traveled around that week. And then things kind of we recorded the second EP and then things kind of ran aground. And I think it was probably to do with the, the whole uh, creation records financial thing, because this was about the time that, you know, they were doing loveless and there was a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And so our record didn't get released and didn't get released the second one and everything kind of lost momentum. And we were trying to go out and get gigs on our own and, it kind of just ended up, you know, running aground on all of that. And then after we split up, then they released the, the other stuff. They actually compiled the two EPs into one sort of mini album afterwards. Yes. Oh, nice. So, uh, That's amazing. But before we before we jump that, is it possible yeah. to sort of go back a bit earlier and just kind of get the, the idea of your kind of youthful um, yeah, so the formative years, you know, the music sure. that, that you got when you were sort of, I don't know, eight or nine when you started to hear stuff for yourself that you thought, God, I quite like this. This is this is kind of not just what my parents listened to or my elder brother or sister or friend, but something that you kind of listened to that you, you kind of the earliest bit that you can remember. Well, what I can remember, because um, being that I was about five years old in 1964, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, that's kind of my first musical memory. Right. Now, now, that doesn't mean that we were switched on, because when you watched Ed Sullivan, it was a variety show. Everybody watched it because there weren't many TV channels. And, you know, they would have the Beatles and they would have a kid spinning plates and then they would have a dog jumping through hoops. Yes. So. That sounds, like, like that sounds like quality Saturday evening tele television, doesn't it, really, in the, from the good old days? Exactly. And so that's the funny thing is when you would actually watch that show, it wasn't because we were super switched on. I mean, my parents' taste in music ran to elevator music, basically. Yes. You know, kind of in his orchestra, things like Sinatra were way too racy for my parents' taste. So oh, okay. my taste doesn't come from there. <laughs> so um, what part of America were you uh, living in? Well, at that point, I was living in suburban Chicago, 
So the other thing that was happening then was, of course, Detroit's not very far from Chicago. Radio in America then was far more regional. So when the, the car radio was on, AM radio, you would be hearing, you know, stuff that was regional hits. And that would include like, you know, early Motown records and things like that. Right. So I've got kind of the, these memories that it was very much top 40 AM radio stuff that I grew up with in my early years. And then in about 1967, uh, when we, you know, every, all the kids had the summer off and we were driving my parents crazy. So they bought a cheap guitar and my dad said he'd give us $5 if we learned to play a song. Nice. So that was quite a lot of money in those played days. played a song and started playing guitar in 1967. Nice. Which was the song? What was the song you picked? I think it was Red River Valley which was just like a sort of three chord old country kind of ballad because we had a music book, a Mel Bay music book that only had those kind of songs in it. And you would basically learn three chord forms and strum along to that, and learn how to do that. So that's where it started. Yes. Oh, fantastic. So, so music was like, you know, it was a certain amount of blackmail there really, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he, when, when, when he came to rue the day, my dad was the classic turn that damn thing down kind of dad. So, you know, yes, he, he was. He did not want to hear fuzz boxes you know, in the bedroom. So, so when, when two years later came along and Woodstock was there, you know, on the news and you were watching those kind of like a mass of people and cars and chaos and confusion, as well as kind of people taking drugs and the whole counterculture. How were your how was the household at that point? Well, by this point in um, 67, we moved from Chicago to Florida. My dad sort of retired early and we moved to Florida to a place that at that time was very remote. Um, and the average age was probably 90 something. Yes. So we lived there and you were very cut off socially there. So there wasn't a lot going on musically in my life then. I mean, the kind of memories you have are hearing about you know, Paul McCartney dying and things like that. Just, you know, very kind of uh, warped things like that. Oh. But they had a school talent contest. So this is when I'm, you know, 10 years old. And we made cardboard cutout guitars. And my first ever actual performance was standing on the school talent stage, not actually knowing how to play this song, but with cardboard guitars, we mimed to I'm a Believer by the Monkees. Nice. So, uh you know, it was typical kind of like late 60s, you know, kid growing up stuff. And at this point, um, mostly retrospectively, we were collecting all the Beatles albums. Um, and so I was very steeped. You know, that, that's really where my music, you know, my interest started was with the Beatles. And I, you know, I, I know them very well and all their records um, from there, we branched out into all the other stuff like the Stones, the Who, Hendrix, the whole sort of, you know, 60s thing, the Birds, all of that stuff. Yes. Um, so when you turned kind of, I suppose, 18, that was kind of the period where the, the kind of the 60s and that kind of scene had changed because all that kind of gang, not all of them, but, you know, like the Beatles have broke up and then, you know, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison and Hendrix had all died and then Altamont. So it felt like... The party had started so well, it ended so badly. And then, you know, like I mean, I know the Stones did, still did Exile um, on Main Street, 
And so they, they still had a couple of more good albums in them before something about a goat. But but did you then sort of kind of branch into that world that was kind of the Stooges and MC5 at all? Um, it was a little bit later. First, what happened was um, that what changed is AM radio went to FM radio, which was a big change in the programming here. FM radio was less about top 40. They would play whole album sides. So, I mean, I would, you know, with my paper round money, I bought Exile on Main Street the day it came out. I actually bought Tumbling Dice when it was a single before the album came out. So at that point, I was deeply into it. I was just economically challenged being about 11 or 12. <laughs> so, but that's yes. where I was spending my money was on music, basically, what I could buy. But, you know, each album was precious and you played it to death. Um, and then the radio changed to FM, which allowed stuff that were, were they were hits over here, but not really to the level that they were in uh, England. So like T-Rex, um, we were into Slade and all these kind of bands that were, they were not very mainstream here. And they all kind of piggybacked off of um, Bowie. Right. Because... Uh, even in the very sort of, uh, how shall I say it, um, hard right confines of Florida, for some reason, Ziggy Stardust was okay. Wow, that's so amazing. I would have just... A lot of that, and that kind of opened a door, and then we were seeking things out, and we were reading um, music magazines, mostly they were called Cream and Circus. And you had, you know, I was reading, you know, when I was like 12, 13 years old, I was reading... Uh, music reviews by Lester Bangs and Robert Criscow and people like that. Yes. And they were very much steeped in that whole world. And, you know, like the early Alice Cooper albums, um, all of that kind of stuff that just didn't sound like the other side of the coin was big. Um, you know, I wasn't really into Zeppelin or Emerson, Lake or Palmer or any of that kind of stuff. And then I bought a book um, that basically talked about and I can't remember who wrote it, but it was one of those, it might've even been Chris Gow who wrote it. And this book basically was about the history of, of rock. Now in 19, early seventies, there wasn't all that much history really. But at the end of this, there was a glossary and the glossary contained a list of a hundred essential albums. I love and those books. Had, he was listing things like the Velvet Underground, the Stooges, um, and all this stuff. So I started seeking out the things that were on that list. And that really took me off into that world. So my best friend and I, we would pool our money to buy records when new records came out. So obviously in 76-ish, so now we're about 17, suddenly, you know, we had been reading about CBGBs and that whole thing in Cream and Circus magazines. So when those records came out, we would go and buy them because the record store would only get one or two of the Ramones album or something. So we would go and get them and we would kind of split them and we'd buy them and then we'd tape them. One would have the cassette and one would have the album. Um, but all that stuff, you know, we were buying like the day it came out. Now, all this time I'm playing guitar a bit and, you know, still in my dreams, I'm going to be a musician. The problem was, is that I knew no other musicians who were into the kind of music I was into. So, you know, I'm trying to learn how to play New York Doll songs and everybody else is playing Stairway to Heaven. Right. So yes. I didn't really get into having like cover bands in high school or anything because I just had nobody who was into the same music I was into. At least nobody who was a musician. 
So I then ended up going to college, to university in Tampa in 1977. And just the summer before that, we had gotten the Sex Pistols singles. Now, these were imports, and a friend of mine had to drive sort of 100 miles to Miami to a small record store to buy the only copies they got. And so I suddenly had Anarchy in the UK, and literally, it was just on repeat on my turntable for hours the day I got it. It just, you know, completely changed everything. You know, having already had these seminal experiences seeing... New York Dolls and people like that on TV programs late at night. So, you know, this was kind of like something that was happening right then. And it just kind of, that all blew me away. So when I got to college in Tampa, which was, Tampa's a city that's, it wasn't a, a normal Florida city in that it isn't really a tourist city. Tampa was big in shipbuilding. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like, if you're familiar with Newcastle. No. Okay, well. <laughs> I have to be honest. You stay south to you. Well, Newcastle uh, was very similar to Tampa in that it had a couple of universities. Um, it had a big shipbuilding industry, and but it was like a proper city. So you actually had like lots of clubs and lots of bands forming in these kind of places. But it was a, a medium-sized city. Um, but all the bands there kind of developed a scene. And that's when I actually met like-minded people and could actually start playing with people. Yes, Wow, that's that's amazing. I know it's interesting because I sort of I can't remember where they were, they lived in America. But when they had to go to a gig, it was literally hundreds of miles to see, you know, go to an alternative night, punk indie night, you know. And it's like, wow, that was real commitment. I would be a bit, yeah. I'd be a bit whiny if I had to go for thirty minutes in a car somewhere. Well, but, my my first real concert, you know, other than local cover bands, was a bunch of us um, when I was, I guess I would have been sixteen. This was August of seventy five. The Stones were touring, and even though we thought they were a bit old, we thought we'd go see them. But they were playing Jacksonville, and Jacksonville's like a nine-hour drive away. <laughs> um, so we all piled into cars and went to Jacksonville and stayed at my friend's older sister's house. Yes. And this show, it was 92 degrees out that day. So you're in this stadium, 92 degrees Fahrenheit, um, high humidity because it's Florida, so it feels like you know, a hundred degrees. And we were in the stadium for like 12 hours and the stones finally came out after the sun went down. You'd seen multiple other bands and stuff, but this was when they would kind of just, you know, come on whenever, you know, there was no schedule stuff would just, you know, and that was the first, you know, that's what it took to go see a real band was, you know, a commitment and you had to, you know, basically beg your parents to let you go, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't like you could get a bus or a train to a venue. You know, this was like you really had to uh, put out some effort. To, My to God, go that is that is so much effort, isn't it? I mean, nine hours in a car. I mean, basically, that takes us, God, it takes us five hours to fly from London to New York, doesn't it? So, yeah. Christ, that's extraordinary. Yes. Did you enjoy the concert? It was great. I had never seen anything like it. I mean, I actually think musically at that point, they were uh, not on top form. I think, you know, I wish I had seen them in 72. It was the tour when Ron Wood had just joined them as a temporary member. Yes, right. So, uh you, you know, lost me too. And as you can hear, there's a there's an album called Love You Live, which is basically um, from that tour, and it's it's pretty it's pretty loose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes. So then, as we truck through the seventies, um, when because yeah, because because our idea of Florida, and I remember a few people 
Well, a few farmers. I came from the kind of countryside, and and there was a couple of farmers who obviously had quite a bit of money, and they'd go to Florida for their holidays. So that kind of made me think, oh, that's the sort of people who go to Florida. So that's not kind of um, it. Never had that kind of appeal from the UK as being an exciting place. Oh, you had Disneyland as well, didn't you? Disney World. So um, yeah, it's interesting. So then, when did you? <clears throat> when did it sort of move? When did you sort of move on again? Well, in Tampa, because I'd only gotten up to the point where I met all these people, and that's where I, we formed my first couple of bands were in Tampa. And um, so this would be basically, well, in the summer of 78, actually, my, after my first year at university, I took my rent money and spent it on a plane ticket and went and spent the summer in London. Um, so I worked in a laundry off the King's Road, and I lived in a, a, a bed sit, and Basically, we had very little money, but we got to see The Clash and The Jam and um, Talking Heads and Patti Smith and all these bands that didn't, because nobody came to Florida, but I got to see all those bands. So there was this thing where The Clash did it in the summer of 78. They did like four or five nights that was called The Music Machine. Right. And they had the specials opening for them and um, Suicide. So I got to go and see that, which is like, you know, one of those sort of like, top five gigs my god that so, was a, that was a good summer wasn't it 78 it was i got i got to see a lot of stuff they'd all kind of gotten just to that point where you know they it was when the clash's second album came out etc cetera, etc cetera. so we got to see a lot of bands we couldn't afford to see many but you know as many as we'd like you had to make choices because we just had so little money but um we would go and see bands and of course it was in those days it was like you could either see the end of the gig and then walk home because we couldn't afford taxis but the last train would leave. So, you know, there were no night buses really back then. So, mm. you know, to, if you wanted to see the end of the Clash gig, you had to walk home for two hours. And so you did. <laughs> God. You know? yeah, so it was no. kind of, you know, that was kind of nuts as well. And then when I went back to Tampa, I formed my first couple of bands there and put out a, an independent single in 1980 um, with a band called The Stick Figures. And then that band decided to move to New York City. So we all basically made arrangements to leave Tampa and move to New York. On the way up there, I spent the summer in Baltimore, where I put together a band with, with a couple of guys from that band, a couple of guys from an earlier band. And we recorded a single by a band called NEMB. Um, then we moved on to New York and started recording an album there. Now, at this point, we were actually in touch with um, Dave Barker at Glass Records. Oh, yes. Blimey. Yeah. And we were supposed to be recording this album for him. But moving to New York City is difficult. You know, it's not like moving to London. All my friends in London kind of like lived in a squat and were on the dole. Yeah. You don't have any of that going on in New York. I mean, you're having to pay rent. So you're working and then trying to do, you know, band stuff after work yes so basically it was it was tough and a couple of the guys basically gave up and went back to florida so i formed another band with with some remnants of that band and another previous band and that was called um king of culture and we actually had a song on an early glass compilation uh, can't remember the name of it right now, but on that were, were people like the Jazz Butcher were on, on that compilation as well. Pat Fish, what a genius. Yeah, so so that we kind of got to that point. Then that band put out a single, then that band split up. There's a lot of things, you know, lots of people in and out. Yes. Um, one of the people who had formed that band with us was Mark Dumay. 
Um, as Mark left the band, we had a couple of other people in and out, and the final guitarist in that band was Kurt Rolski. So then Crash formed, and at first I wasn't in the band. I was I had a little eight-track studio in my um, fifth-floor walk-up in New York. So, you know, I'd be recording people in this basically in a little eight by eight bedroom where I used my, my toilet for the vocal booth. Nice. <laughs> and I was recording. So I recorded most of the crash album there. I recorded an album by a guy called Dave Bowman who had been in most of these bands. He has a band called nothing but happiness who glass had just released an album by a year or two ago. Um, I was, you know, so basically out of that, Mark Dumay created a label called Justine and I was the kind of, you know, technical guy. So I recorded the bands and produced all the records. And then eventually I, there was a personnel change in Crash and I joined and Kurt Rolski joined and then Byron, the drummer joined. And that was the kind of the version that then um, went to England because uh, the single, the little seven inch singles we put out back in the US were picked up by a guy called Dave Whitehead um, oh, was he in a... Dave Whitehead was working at Pinnacle, I believe. Right. And so he started a little label, and he put out an album. So he kind of did the Crash album. We came over for a six-week tour, landing on the 1st of November 1986, and I ended up staying there for like the next 18 years. Yes. So what was, sorry, there was a lot of information there. What, what was the label's name that you, that Dave put, um, put that out on? Was it Remorse label or? Yes, that right. was the Remorse label. Because yeah. the first single was on Justine Records. Of, of... Yeah, the first one, the first one by Crash was, was Almost. And that was actually a flexi disc. Yes. The next one was Don't Look Now, and that was a 7-inch. Yeah. And then he, we did some stuff with a couple of other bands that we knew, one of them uh, being Dave Bowman's Nothing But Happiness. So his first album was on Remorse. His second one was on Glass. Um, Kurt Rolski put out the first ultra-vivid scene song as a single on that label. Blimey. God, that's... And all those recorded in my bedroom. Well, you moved fast, didn't you? But then with with Crash and the the lineup, which had Adam, Byron, Kurt, and Mark, you then also you all came. You relocated from New York to London. Yes, it was originally supposed to be you know a short term thing, but the scene that we were in in New York, we there was a whole scene around this club called the Pyramid, right? Um, and a bar called uh. King Tut's Wawa Hut, not the one in Glasgow. This was the original one. And so we all used to play. I mean, we would play the Mud Club and CBGBs and Dance at Tyria and all those places as well. But this, these were our kind of local haunts in the East Village. Yeah. Um, but that was a kind of a different bent. And as we moved into a sort of, um, you know, the vein that, that Crash was in and away from, away from the more kind of like esoteric, noisy kind of stuff and into to that Bain, very much influenced by the Jesus and Mary chain, because we saw them when they came over to New York uh, after their first single. Yes. Um, we were very influenced by that whole scene, and you can hear that in, in the recording. Um, so when we got to England, 
we kind of hooked up with that whole scene around the Falcon and the Black Horse in Camden. Right, yes. If if you're familiar with that. So basically you would go there and it would be us and Primal Scream and Loop and My Bloody Valentine and Jesus and Mary Chain. We would kind of be the audience for each other's gigs at, at you know, in these pubs at that time. Nice. And, you know, and Alan was around. So we all just kind of knew each other. And that's those gigs were, I think, still put on by Jeff Barrett, who le- later made Heavenly Records. Yeah, and there was there was those kind of small other places like um, was it the living room and room at the top and all those kind of indie nights that started happening as well. Yeah, and we never that was actually I think a little bit before us I think before we got there because we basically got there at the end of '86, um, and then kind of hooked up with this scene. Um, we did a, a gig in Manchester with My Bloody Valentine. This is when they still had Dave in the band, right? Um, so we did a gig with them and ended up kind of having, you know, a crazy night in Manchester, you know, and sort of became very good friends with them. Uh, this is when they were, you know, still on, uh, they were still doing like strawberry wine and ecstasy and those records. So they weren't, you know, what they became later, but we became very friendly with them and, you know, still, I'm still in touch with all of them to this day. You know, we go and see them when they're here. Um, and that was, you know, it's kind of like all these bands were there together, you know, hanging out at these clubs. And then Douglas Hart um, started doing a club on Charing Cross Road in a little upstairs room that was called the Speed Club. Um, this was on a Wednesday night. and It would start at like 10 or 11. So we would all kind of convene there. And it literally was everybody who became, I guess, you know, for... They would basically become that whole shoegaze scene. Oh, nice. So, you know, people who ended up being in Moose and all these other bands were there. And we would all, you know, the bands would play. So, you know, you'd go there and Alan's band, uh, you know, McGee's band would actually play in this little club. They weren't playing a lot in those days, but they would actually go and play there because this was literally like, you know, everybody who was there was this very close-knit community. And so that was kind of great, you know, falling into that. And yes. having all of that going on there. So you so, were still you were still in your early twenties at that stage. So you must have been, you know, this must have felt like one of those kind of Jack Kerouac, kind of the beat generation on the road kind of pioneers kind of coming to London. Well, I, I was a little bit older because for me, the the Tampa scene, which you know, which was again, we had a really, you know, a really vibrant scene with the original bands that were, you know, it was really interesting stuff going on for a, you know, sort of third rate industrial city. And then when I went to New York, I fell into a whole scene that was happening there because the East Village was just kind of being invented. I mean, you know, people were just moving there because they had been priced out. You couldn't afford to move there and live in the village. So, you know, the East Village scene was really happening. So I had kind of been through two of those already. And then I went to this one. I was, let's see, I would have been about uh, 27 at that point. So I was a little bit older than most of the other guys who were around because I'd already kind of, you know, done these other two Yes. So a lot of the people were a few years younger than me. And how did you, I mean, were you all developing as kind of musicians and and writing material? Because, I mean, you've all gone on, and especially Kurt 
Ralski's kind of gone on to do some phenomenal stuff. Do, so, were, you know, because a lot of bands that especially, I mean, I come from Norwich, right? Norwich does not have a great music scene. We had the Higson's Farmers Boys and Serious Drinking. There isn't a lot else going on here. Right. And, and it's never really, you know, it's not, a lot, not many bands took off. There's been bands who are like, oh, right, this is amazing. And it's like, but they never got out of playing in front of people they basically knew. And then a few other gigs and that was like, okay, that's the end of that. So, you know, Cherry Red Records will never put out a compilation of Norwich bands unlike Manchester, right. Liverpool, Sheffield, you know, etc. So, I mean, did... So you must have been developing quite quickly to to um, as musicians to do your material that that became sort of much better or you know well known. Um, yes, and it was also a sort of cross pollination. You know, you had people um, coming from all over the place at this point into London and into New York. So you know, you were meeting people, and and part of the thing was even beyond just sheer musicianship, because I wouldn't call myself a virtuoso musician. I come from that sort of DIY indie kind of thing where I am not like, you know, a brilliant musician in that sense. Um, it, was, it was kind of like, you know, you were working in the realm of ideas and, and sound and and image was a large part of it. I mean, if you look at kind of like how one of the, the great things about all those early creation bands is just the way that they they went beyond just, you know, any kind of virtuoso skill on, on, on an instrument, it was really more about the whole package. And really in sort of like the broader spectrum of rock and roll, that is a really big part of it. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's always been important, you know, the whole, how people are perceived and, you know, the thing about music that I've kind of, I realized looking back, cause it's very different when you're in one of those scenes because you're very sort of you're all sort of focused on what's happening there. And this was this cauldron that came out with all these different bands, you know, happening in little pubs. But, you know, there were somewhere else there'd be another whole scene going on. And then you would get these two things that would meet, like with the, when the, the whole sort of um, house thing started and that kind of dance scene took off what would be happening is we would like um, at one point, something pretty beautiful did a tour with um, when I say a tour, we were playing a bunch of pubs and small clubs, but you were playing, we were playing with primal scream. This is preloaded. And the album before that was much more of a stonesy kind of rocker. And they literally had been living in this van and traveling around just playing gig after gig for like a year or two. And we did part of that with them around um, the UK and what would happen is because the dance music was 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 coming on what would happen is that we'd go and play our jingly jangly indie music or whatever and then the DJ would play and we'd all be in this place and we'd be kind of dancing to that music so even before it was influencing what was going on you know by basically when the gig was done the DJ would come on and we'd all be there drinking after that and you'd so you'd end up kind of like suddenly into this other world and then the cross-pollination sort of started happening from there and it got to the point where like alan really was going less to gigs and more to you know dance events than he was indie gigs at one point yes and and that was kind of towards the the latter you know as the 80s progressed on because because i mean the indie kind of world kind of did explode. I mean, you had that post-punk period, but then, you know, the Smiths came along in 83. And then you were sort of talking about, you know, the cross-pollination, because there was a lot of bands from Australia that would that knew they had to come out of Australia to, you know, 
um, you know, kind of make it, I suppose. And also, the, the, you know, like New Zealand, you had the chills, then you had the, you know, triffids and go-betweens yeah. and, and probably died pretty at one stage. And so you would have been meeting those guys because they were all um, living in squats and, you know, as cheap a housing as possible. And then you had, um, yeah, another band. Yeah, there was just a lot of people I've kind of interviewed from that period who sort of all went to the same kind of area in London because you could either squat it or you could just kind of live very cheaply. But it wasn't it was OK because when you're young and you're sort of as long as you're not in debt and you're just kind of getting by, you know, it's still an exciting journey. So with your kind of musical world that was Crash at that stage and you're on Remorse, the Remorse label, were you thinking, you know, when you were looking at people like the Smiths and then you had, you know, like I mentioned, a few of those other bands as well as the Wolfhounds and Yeah, Yeah, No. Did it feel like you were kind of like, God, we're quite close to, to making it something quite special here? Yes. And I mean, at that point, you know, all of us, what you know, you were looking at basically the people who had broken out and become big from our scene were, were the Mary Chain and Primal Scream kind of happened a bit later house of love were you know very successful because they got that deal you know after their first album so it suddenly was a possibility because people you knew were doing that yes and uh you know and literally the fact that you could go and you would play some some gig at the george roby and there would be by the end of the night there'd be you know the other band waiting to get the drum kit back that you were borrowing a couple of bartenders and a drunk guy passed out in the corner. Well, it would turn out the drunk guy, you know, wrote for Melody Maker and would give you a good review the next day. So, you know, <laughs> yes. that's the kind of thing that was happening. It was all very exciting, you know, and you kind, of, you kind of felt like, you know, all the things you had dreamed about as a kid were kind of like possible. Yeah, and also that time, because you were in the UK, I mean, it's quite, compared to America, it's tiny. So, you know, you, you can sort of find yourself, I don't know, going up to Manchester or being in Glasgow, you know, going around the country relatively quickly. And also you had, again, it was it was tiny in the sense, you also had the gatekeepers, you had the music papers, you know, three three a week, day in a weekly papers, as well as John Peel. So, you know, a John Peel play again would give you that sort of elevation and exposure, as well as all those kind of indie nights. You know, every town and venue, you know, every town and city had a venue, didn't they? You know, at least one night a week, there would be an indie alternative night going on exactly and you know having people you know people forming these little labels and putting stuff out i mean you know people like alan and and like dave whitehead and later jeff barrett you know having these people do that was phenomenal because everybody kind of knows nowadays in retrospect they mostly know creation as you know by the big names the big successful bands but the reality was was that alan was putting out tons of bands and he would you know he'd meet you he'd kind of hear something he'd give you a chance you know that it you it's really hard to get it in with that that wasn't happening in new york you know i wasn't finding that in fact at that point when i was in new york a lot of the the indie action in the states had kind of migrated out to smaller cities like you know seattle and dc and places like that partly because new york was just a, a tough place to live it was really expensive you know and it was a hard slog yeah, absolutely. So then how did, so so obviously Crash finishes around 86? Um, Crash, let's see, after we released the album that we had recorded in New York, we released it on Remorse, we toured that, we did another little single um, with Crash, and and then essentially what happened is is that 
Mark Dumay, who was, you know, in that band, unlike most of my bands where it's much more like a community, that was a band where he was the principal um, and we were all playing with him. We had all played with him before in other entities, but this was his project and we were supporting him. Um, he has always been a bit of a chameleon and he was kind of he was kind of losing interest in the the sort of rock songwriter indie thing. And he was moving back to the dance thing, which is something that he had always liked anyway. He had, you know, he had liked that kind of music yes. and been involved in it, you know, in his earlier days when he was in Baltimore. So we weren't really the right people for that. And so we didn't break up per se. Um, we were looked. Adam had to move back to New York. He was English, but he worked in New York. So he had to go back there. The rest of us were still there, but we weren't really doing much. Um, cause Mark wasn't writing much cause I think his heart was moving on more to the dance scene. Yeah. So, that kind of left us, we, we had all basically upped and moved to London to be in this band. So I started playing with some other people, um, some of my songs. Um, Kurt started doing, you know, demos for Ultra Vivid Scene, et cetera, et cetera. I was working in a little studio at this, at this point um, down in South London. And I was doing stuff like um, I knew Emma from Lush. Through, oh, yeah the scene and so when they wanted to do some demos i recorded the demos for them that they gave to 4ad so you know i, I was doing all this other stuff i was I, the way i got into that studio was that every monday night i would or every monday day i would spend 10 hours doing demos with jerry dammers so Ooh. i would basically be in there recording with jerry dammers and you know he hadn't put his head above the parapet in many years but he was actually doing this stuff but he was still under contract and didn't want to deliver a record to them so he was working with me in the studio doing demos demos and for that i would get to use the studio for free overnight so you know i was doing various projects in there and then um the last thing that happened with crash as a kind of rock band was that joss cope joined because alan knew him and we needed a bass player. So Joss Cope joined on bass. At this point, Kurt and I were both kind of like ready to move on because we feel like Mark had lost interest in the project and we wanted to get on with our own stuff. So after that, Crash didn't really do anything else. And eventually Joss and I hooked up to form something pretty beautiful out of having met in Crash. And that's when Mark Dumay uh, went and put together the Tangerine project, which was much more of a studio-based project, but that's when he moved into doing that, which was, it didn't really fit precisely the kind of dance move at the time, but it was an early foray for creation into that stuff. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that is something that, that you know, was a, a sort of change in that direction for Mark and he was on creation when he did that project. Oh, right. What was just, just, what was that project called again? Tangerine. Right. God, actually, I have to confess, I did not, I did not know about that. So there's a lot, that, yes, I didn't, I, yes, you get, a, you get a lot of depth on this, don't you, really? Sort of, the, so many kind of bands kind of interwoven with each other. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was really like, and we keep, you know, popping up and doing things together, even to this day, you know. We keep popping up in the same places. So yes. obviously um, in 1992, Mark Dumay died of AIDS-related illness. So um, 
he, you know, he didn't have after Tangerine, he really didn't do anything because that was kind of when he started getting sicker. Mm-hmm. So that was another thing that was going on. Yes. So then, so, so you're in sort of London and what was the studio that you were working in? It was a little place in the back of a pub called Sonica. It belonged to Pete Jostens, who was in a band called Sudden Sway. Oh, yes. And so, and Pete Jostens actually got together with Mark and co-produced the Tangerine stuff in that studio. And I was working there. And then eventually we built a bigger studio around the corner in an old piano factory. And we did loads of stuff there. One of the other guys there was, uh, he did more like dance stuff. And he was doing a lot of sort of TV stuff. So he was doing the music for, I don't know if you remember the show, Vic and Bob's uh, Wild Night Out or whatever it was yes, called. Yes, yes. He was doing all the, the musical bits for that in that studio. And I was working with various people. I recorded um, an album with Terry Vickers there after he left Levitation. Oh, yes. um, I did some stuff with Kyle Coughlin, you know, lots of various things, folk groups. I did opera, whatever came in the door, you know. So I was doing that and kind of working on what I would be doing next. But what I, I, I kind of got to this point where I wasn't able to get a band together. Because what did change when you got into the later stages is that in the early days of kind of indie, it was kind of like nobody expected to actually be paid or make money. We all expected just to do music. But once some people got successful, people were looking for, you know, they were basically, if they joined your band, then they were hoping to get paid. And, you know, that didn't materialize. So I was mostly doing stuff in that studio. Yes. Um, and I, it, at that time, uh, this is when uh, my bloody Valentine were recording Loveless. And Kevin had a, a place that was built on the money he got for his deal. What was it? Um, uh not Virgin, uh, the other one. Anyway, so he, he had built a studio in South London, and I had a studio in South London. And so we were both sort of building these studios, and we just kind of like would, you know, get together and compare what we were doing. I mean, obviously, mine had, did not have the commercial impact of his, but, you know, we were both kind of working through this this period of kind of like, you know, next steps and doing stuff. So we would spend a lot of time together talking about, you know, what we were doing. And, and, you know, with him, a lot of the times it would be technology, sometimes kind of metaphysics, um, other times just basic things like snare drum tuning, you know. Yeah. But uh, we spent a lot of time talking through those kind of things. So when and then you... when, when, when that album came out, uh, it was about the time that that recession was going on in the, you know, it, and basically I wasn't making a whole lot of money at the studio. So I ended up going off with them on a, world tour to do to be his guitar tech when he did the loveless tour right. so that's kind of how i spent 92 okay did you come to because actually i did see that tour when they i think they had silver silverfish supporting them we one. did some of the time yeah yeah i remember that um it was exciting stuff but, but before before that god there's a lot isn't there um but something, yes, I didn't, there was so much. Um, so something pretty beautiful came along. So was that the, from the Ashes of Cra- Crash? Was that kind of a, a more of a side project that you had as, alongside your studio work? Um, yeah, what I was doing is I was using those overnight sessions that were free. Joss and I would go in and we'd basically work on songwriting together um, and do demos overnight. 
Um, we both knew Alan, you know, cause I mean, you know, in these days we were hanging out with Alan in, in pubs. We, you know, we knew all the other bands, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just Joss and I working in the studio. Um, and so Alan said, you know, he'd put out a single. So he kind of booked some time in his studio for us. And, um, we had, um, Dave Mulraney from jazz butcher came to play drums on that one. Um, and then when we went to do a bunch of gigs, we um, got the two Daves from the Weather Prophets. Oh, yes. On bass and drums. And they came and they played, you know, on, basically while we were touring. Um, and then when we did, then after that, we found, because, you know, they were busy. They were into a lot of different bands and things at the time. Um, so we then got a guy named Dave Francolini and a guy named Joe. And they became the bass player and drummer. They were from Bristol kind of way. Um, and they were kind of like the other half when we did the second part of the Something Pretty Beautiful recordings. Yeah, so this was kind of, you were taking all this up to sort of the late 80s and early 90s. And, and Joss Cope is the brother of um, Julian, isn't it? Isn't yes. It? Yes. So, yeah. So were you, I mean, at that stage, kind of trying to get my head around all that. That's uh, <laughs> a lot going on. Um, yeah. So so at that point, you know, because we had the indie world, that was fantastic. Then, you know, the ecstasy world that came in. And as you mentioned a bit earlier, there was the sort of the, the dance, the, the 16 to 18 year old had changed. They, they didn't really care about, you know, that stuff that we all listened to in the early 80s. They wanted their own soundtrack, which was, you know, the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays and Primal Scream. And then you had grunge as well coming from Seattle. So that, that there was a lot of music, a lot of things happening as well as My Bloody Valentine. And then you had that North London scene with people like Silverfish and the Faith Healers and the yeah. sort of shoegazing world of, you know, I don't know, Galaxy 500 as well. So, so were you, I mean, you must have been incredibly excited with the amount of work going on as well as being in the studio, as well as forming a new band. Um. It was for me. It was an interesting time because there was all this stuff going on. I, unfortunately, I wasn't actually finding the people I needed to get something. You know, people. I would sort of get a drummer and a bass player. Then I'd find a guitar player, and the drummer would leave. Then I'd find a drummer and the bass player would leave. I, I was struggling to get you know enough people in a room to actually go out and do a gig. And indie music was still very much led by you had to go out and play. Yes. You know. Um, so I had access to a studio and I was doing that kind of stuff. I could get people to, you know, to play on, you know, and I could play the guitar and the bass if I needed to. But to actually have like a band that was a functioning entity, I was struggling to get the all the people in the room at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And so I had a, it was a kind of frustrating period because there was so much activity and so much going on. And I, I actually was kind of like somehow or other not managing to get myself you know, in a position to take advantage of any of that. So, yeah. So then how did, so, so as we trucked into the next decade, what happens with, to you and, and the, and, and the sort of the scene and being in London as well through the, through the nineties? Well, when you, uh, I, you know, I was still going to gigs. I was still hanging out with people, but I was working more full time in the studio in the sort of mid nineties. Um, after the My Bloody Valentine tour, I did occasional roadieing. So I would go and, you know, like when 
when Hole played at Reading, you know, I was kind of like one of their roadies. And again, I was doing that stuff more because it got you, you know, into Reading backstage with facilities. But, you know, I was kind of doing that kind of stuff and seeing people there, but I wasn't really playing. Mm. Um, I was writing, I was doing, you know, recordings in my studio, but it was really like I would get a drummer to come in. I, you know, it wasn't like it was a band and I was still trying to look for a band. So, as time went on, I get into the later 80s, like about 97, and I just kind of, I kind of run the gamut, and I just kind of thought it's time for a change for me. Yes. And so I kind of stopped all of that, and I went back to university and did another degree. This time I did a degree in engineering. As in, you know, yeah. product design, engineering, maths, and all that. And at that point, I'm about 38. And then, a couple of years into that, I moved to Hong Kong because my wife suddenly um, was offered a position in Hong Kong, so we up sticks and moved to Hong Kong for three years. Right. That Did that take you to the millennium? Or just beyond the millennium? It's, it actually started, we moved there about right after the millennium. Right. So basically the last three years of the 90s, I was, you know, at university. Yeah. You know, not really doing any music. The occasional session to make some money, um, you know, engineering. Um, and then we went to Hong Kong. So for that, you know, for that period of time, I wasn't really doing any music to speak of. You know, I was listening to music and things like that, but I wasn't actually doing anything to do with music. Yes, blimey. And then, so so you went to Hong Kong until about 2003, 2005. And then, so what's happened in the last 15 years? Well, 2003, I moved back to the UK, and then we just felt like we needed a change. So we moved to Florida, to the town I grew up in, which was an odd decision, but that's, you know, that's for... Uh, you know, a psychiatrist to figure out why I did that. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't doing music because where I grew up, there is, you know, there is no music. It's basically bars with, uh, you know, Jimmy Buffett playing in the background. You know, that's that's what they're into here. So yes. there's no real, no real scene here. But um, I ended up work, getting a job working for a medical device company where I've been for 16 years. Um, so this is very much like a James Williamson you know, where I ended up working at uh, Sony. <laughs> um, so I've been doing that for 16 years. Um, but about seven years ago, I just felt like I, I wanted to do music again. So I built a little studio in my garage and I literally taught a couple of friends to play. So it was kind of like my first band, you know, like when you're yes. a kid and, and you, you forget, I taught them how to play. I got the guy who sat next to me at work who had, had played drums in high school and I made him come around and I basically put together a band and we just did, you know, really sloppy kind of jams of old stone songs and things in my garage. till I got to the point where I could actually kind of play and sing again. Um, and then I wrote a set of music, very simple kind of, uh, kind of almost like MC five stooges, simple kind of, you know, three chord, uh, indie blues punk kind of stuff and started playing at a local dive bar. Then I put together another band of slightly more accomplished people 
And we focused more on a kind of, uh, you know, early who clash jam kind of sound. And so for, since then, for the past sort of seven years, I've been, we played a bunch of gigs where we could, but there's not really any good venues. And the, the dive bar we used to play shut down. But I put out an album a couple of years ago, which was the stuff I recorded in 92, but never found a label for. Um, I put out three albums with my current band, um, which is called Agent 13. And we're in the middle of recording the fourth album with that band now. And the second album, I'm trying to finish off from the other band, Gone Walkers, which people went off and had children and moved away, et cetera, et cetera. But I still had some rough recordings, so I'm turning those into an album. So essentially, I'm doing lots of recording because one of the things that I, I regretted when I stopped doing music was that I had done an awful lot of music and actually released very little of it. Yes. And yes. so I, I, I just decided, you know, I have the facility, I, I can do this, and, you know, it's. I don't do vinyl because, honestly, I don't have the infrastructure to store it and ship it and all of that, but, you know, I put out some CDs and downloads and things like that, but I just basically got back into doing music to keep myself sane and feel like there was something in my life that, you know... It's and, good. And just because I felt I had spent so many years working through that, that I kind of needed to go back and it, I had the power to do this myself. I just needed to do it. Yes. So. Well, my God, that's an amazing story. And I, I have to say it was a lot more than I expected at the beginning, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> yes. Jesus, I'm going to have to sit down in a dark room and uh, contemplate all that because, um, yes, I just thought, you know, I just made a few connections with, you know, obviously the Kurt um, Ralski and uh, and Crash and I thought oh that's interesting because because I did an interview with him and I hadn't really mentioned that I think it was much more about his other stuff the ultra vivid scene and um, and obviously that had gone for a few years and now he's back in New York and um, and then I thought oh you know I'm always curious about what all these other bands but I did not reckon on all these all the stuff that um, that also happened um, yeah there you go. I should do more. Well, it's like funny. That. Even on sites like Discogs, I kind of show up as three different people. I show up as the actually four. I show up as from the Tampa bands as one person, from the New York bands as another, from the the English stuff as another, and then you know doing uh, engineering and production as another. It's kind of like you know, it took a long time for whoever does that to connect up the fact that it was all just kind of me doing stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, and I had the, yes, the whole the whole sort of scene in London and and all that kind of the club scene, which you know is amazing because there's a you know Neil Taylor who put together that C eighty six cassette with the NME in, in that famous year. He's put a book out recently called C eighty six and all that in. It's called, what is it? Oh, yeah, C86 and all that, the creation of indie in difficult times. And he, he does have a lot of detail about various clubs and bands and, and the uh, kind of people who made it all happen. So um, I'm going to have to go back and have another little look because he does mention, obviously, a lot of those people you, you talked about, the Jasmine Minx, the Orchids, Biff Bang Powell, Alan, um, and all those little clubs. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. Actually, I just love all those kind of, you know, all those little kind of scenes that happened, even if it was only for six months, because things came out of it or things got created that, that were quite fascinating. Yeah, and being in them was just, you know, like I said, the one in Tampa, the one in New York, and that scene in, you know, around Camden, you know, it was all you you had to do it yourself. I mean, just to go back to the Tampa scene, what it was like there is that the punk bands would all get together. We'd find some little dive bar 
that had a stage in the back. It would have two drunk construction workers propping up the bar. And we'd go in and we'd say, hey, if we can use your stage on a Friday night, we'll charge our friends to you know, go into the room to pay the bands. They'll buy drinks from you. We won't charge your locals anything. And we'd go in and we would basically move into this, you know, redneck dive bar and we'd have gigs there until eventually one of the redneck guys would hit on one of the punk girls, you know, and her boyfriend would have a swing and the guy would get his gun out and then we'd all leave. I mean, (laughs) we made those scenes ourselves. And I mean, I think that's part of the thing is understanding how in all these little scenes, you know, there's got to be people like, like Alan and like Jeff Barrett, you've got to have those people. They're so essential to kind of, you know, putting it together. And then the bands, you've got to be willing to do it essentially for nothing because nobody's making any money off that stuff at first, you know, Um, and Alan's obviously footing creation out of his own pocket. And all those small labels were done either by the bands themselves or people who had no real money. It's all kind of done for love, but it's just so exciting to do it. But you just need all those people. Yes, well, I, I, I certainly, yes, I, I believe, you know, I mean, Liverpool had, you know, Eric's and they had various kind of people who were kind of movers and shakers and Manchester had, you know, was it Alan, Alan Wilson, no, Tony Wilson. And, um, you know, and I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Norwich never had, you know, where I'm from, didn't. And I'm sure it was probably because there was no kind of slightly charismatic kind of person who pulled it together a lot yeah. of the time. So, you know, it was, it was a rather... Yeah, it was like one of those balloons that didn't, quite, you know, just go. It didn't yeah. quite ever happen. But you know, we had, you know, various clubs and indie nights. So you know, it was all right. It just, there just was no bands, and there was no kind of. I mean, that is a bit of a sweeping statement, but you know, there was nothing that you would ever go. Oh yeah, that band and that band, and they became that. It was like no, they just didn't become anything. In fact, I don't think they even recorded an album because you know they might have had a cassette. So you do, yeah, I completely agree. You do need those characters who are kind of going to drive it through and stick through it you know up and down and put clubs on and you know be happy to foot the bill and take the kind of not the kind of crashing ego problem but you know know it's kind of worth persevering with if you only get 10 people turn up on the first night it could be exactly 20 people on the next night but yeah you've got to have that personality to keep pushing through and um yeah that's that's there's not a lot of those people about basically yeah, and I'm, you know, in those days you had fanzines and all this kind of stuff that you know the major music press would actually show up at those gigs. Um, you know, being where I am, it's like there is nothing happening locally, and I, I'm kind of out of touch. I kind of expected, honestly, when I went back to doing music, that with the internet, you know, everything would be simple to connect up with. But the reality is, everybody's on there, so you know, trying to uh, stick your head above the crowd. It's still something where you need to be in a place where there's a scene or be able to basically drive around and play gigs until somebody notices you. Yes. You know. So, yeah, Tampa. So that's is that where you're at at the moment, in Tampa? No, no, no. I'm actually in a place called Bonita Springs, which is, um, for want of a better term, it's a kind of resort area. It's where I, It's where I grew up after I left Chicago before I went to Tampa and I'm about two hours south of Tampa. Right. So this is a place full of, you know, lovely beaches and con condos, et cetera, et cetera, that really, I've actually bought a house in England that I intend to retire to in a few years. Oh, nice. Uh, that's, you know, <laughs> that's you've never been there. If you haven't been to, to uh, Newcastle, you probably haven't been to Northumberland, which is almost in Scotland, but, uh, you know, I've, I've once that's part, where I'm I moving want... back to. 
Oh, nice. I know there's a there's a sort of North Northumberland pipe player called Catherine Tickell, who um I used to quite like. I I had a bit of a penchant for sort of folk music once. So um. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, 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 well. I'm moving to a place called Annick that has a well until recently had an annual music festival, but um, it's it's near Newcastle, and we have I have you know quite a lot of friends who are actually in Newcastle, because one of the things I've noticed is an awful lot of my friends who are my age, you know, they've moved back somewhere near where they actually started out, you know. Um, it's just the nature of, you know, family and this, that, and the other. Um, but for me, this is just a little bit too far away from my, you know, where my heart's desire is, which is, you know, doing that kind of music. There's just no place for it here, really, so. Yes, so new yeah okay so you're gonna one day go back to northumberland yes i mean without going down that road because it's another two-hour conversation and i don't fit in here politically (laughs) (laughs) good i i i kind of yes you don't we can yeah so that's fine i kind of i did wonder half oh no no it's that when i came here i honestly what i thought was it's just <laughs> where people retire i thought okay all those nasty old people that i grew up around when i was a kid they'll be gone and now i'll have a bunch of cool old hippies moving here i don't know where they went but they didn't come here <laughs> you know what i have is a whole bunch of uh, rich industrialists you know with their condos on the beach and this that and the other yes. i mean there is another side to this place it's like you know i'm i'm wedged between the gulf of mexico and the everglades yeah. You know, so in terms of that kind of stuff, you know, it's it's absolutely, it's, you know, it's 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 a beautiful place in that sense. But I've just watched them bulldoze so much of it to build golf courses and condos that it's kind of lost all its appeal at this point. Yes, yeah, I'm sure. So, and then, and good luck with the next five months, then or four months. Thank you very much. Yes, <laughs> I'm doing what I can. One of the things I'm doing in my little studio here is I am uh, helping record audio for podcasts and advertisements for the local Democratic Party. <laughs> doing yes. what I can. God, I know. We, God, I hope on New Year's Eve we can celebrate. Right. Look, well, thank you. And um, the good thing is, and I didn't tell you this at the beginning, but Alan is a really big fan of this this show. He listens to all of them. So he's going to be amazed when he hears this one. He really does. Could be. I, good luck tidying it all up because I know it was it was not exactly a linear conversation. No, no, but he, you know, it's funny because he's such a fan and he one day he just got in touch with me and said, God, I've just been listening to your show. I really love it. And it's like, oh, okay. I thought, oh, that's quite sweet. And then literally he, he kind of gets in touch most days and says, God, I just listened to the last one. And, and he loves it. He absolutely loves it. And, and so, he, you know, and <laughs> he's going to be really bowled over when he hears this one because, like, I didn't know the whole creation thing either. So, yes, you'll, you'll probably get Alan contacting you and saying hi soon. <laughs> there you go. It'd be good to hear from him. I haven't seen him in a very long time. Oh, God, I tell you, he will really, he'll love to get yeah he's so sweet actually i didn't know him at all but he does love this show and it's like he says yeah i listen i listened to five of your shows yesterday they're fantastic it's like right okay and he really yeah i mean listening to the one you did with him i mean he's just so enthusiastic even after everything that's gone on you know he's still so enthusiastic and that's what it used to be like we all used to go out on you know what would happen is everybody even if you weren't on the label you know you would go and you would you'd meet up at at 
the creation office and then you'd all go off to a pub and then, you know, you'd go to, you know, a gig somewhere or whatever. And it was like, he's, you know, we all just used to hang out. It wasn't like he was some aloof, hard to meet person in those days. He was just, you know, there hanging out all the time. So. Yes. No, I know. It's, it's kind of, it warms my heart really. Anyway. And then there are fond farewells. That is the in- end of the interview with Bill Carey um, talking about his life in music. This has been David Eastall, the C86 show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86show. It's all there. Plus, all these have been archived. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. I know, it's dramatic stuff. I've done a lot of interviews with a lot of bands, especially from the 80s. You'll love them. Anyway, have a great week.